Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 John, not the Gospel of John, 1 John. It might have a Roman numeral in front of it. It might say the first epistle of John, something like that. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Yeah, this summer is going to be great, and Park Blast is going to be great. When we designed Park Blast all those years ago, we considered parks being like a neutral ground. Like, it's sometimes hard to invite people, particularly kids uh, of families who are unchurched, to invite their kids to a church for a, a myriad of reasons. And so parks are neutral ground. They, they're uh, neighborhood parks. So you could tell the parks that we pick, pick there, they're just neighborhood parks here in Riverside. Most of those parks are parks that our family, the families have been to in the past. And so, yeah, this is definitely for the kids of Grace Community Church. And so certainly bring your kids, if your kid's over in the Family Life Center, over in our kids' ministry right now, bring them for sure. But they have friends. And so this is their chance to begin to invite their friends to things that they would hear the gospel to. You have nieces and nephews, you have grandkids, and they all have friends too. And so, yeah, as Pastor Chuck mentioned, this is an, an in-reach, meaning it's beneficial for our church family, but it's also an outreach. So think of these parks as like your ability to invite people just to a park. You're not inviting them to Grace Community Church, but just to a park for fun, and also they will hear the gospel there as well. It's free. It's completely free. When we say register, we just want to know that you're coming so that we have <laughs> enough food for you too, you know? So registering is not an expense. It's completely free. Um, we want you to come and to make this as an, an outreach for your family as well. Well, it's summertime, even though it doesn't feel like it. Uh, it feels like it's November. But um, it's summertime, and each summer we study a book of the Bible, there are 66 books or 66 different writings in now what we have as a collated Bible, but there's 66 different writings that all have been placed together. There are 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament, and they, it was written by 40 different authors that spanned over the time of over 1,500 years, those 40 authors. So we're talking patriarchs. We're talking prophets, uh, judges, uh, apostles, and most of these men, they didn't know each other. It's not like they all got together and they all said, hey, we need to make sure that we have, we're consistent in our writing, and so let's all agree on what we're going to write. These 40 different men over this 1,500 years, they, they weren't born in the same culture at all. Most of them weren't even born in the same era as the other authors. And so they didn't have any like common cultural backgrounds that would weave a consistent thread throughout all of those 1,500 years of writings and the 40 different books. And yet, there's complete consistency in it. Contrary to popular belief, there are no contradictions in the Bible. Yes, there are some things that are hard to understand. Yes, there are some things that take work to put together in there but it's completely consistent. Now, how could that be? How could there be consistency over authors who didn't know each other from different times, from different places, 1,500 years time span? How could that even be? Well, the reason that that's the case is that these are not men's words. These are God's words. 
And so this is now the written Word of God, and they've all been, as I say, like collated together, bound together, but they're different writings all placed together. And we call that canonization. It's been canonized. This is the canon of Scripture. Now, the word canon is not a Christian term. It's not a biblical term. It's just a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a secular term that comes from the rule of law that is used to determine if a book reaches a particular standard. Does it reach the standard? Um, so, this is secular books, religious books. Does it meet the standard? Like, for example, if a book was purported to be, let's say, written in the 10th century at a certain time period, if it's purported to be written in the 10th century and comments on 10th century eras, then the investigators then would go about to determine if there's enough uh, proof that that was written in the 10th century, that it met the standard of being able to comment on that. And if there was enough evidence, then the book would be canonized. That's the word. It met the standard. Now, if there was another book that was purported to be written about aliens uh, seeding life on planet Earth, then the investigators would go about trying to determine if that was even possible. And if not, that book would not be canonized. It didn't reach the burden of proof. It didn't meet the standard. And so now here we have, we have 66 different writings by 40 different authors that span over an immense amount of time, those authors not knowing each other. And, and now these books need to be canonized. And so what's the standard here? The standard is not like a, was it written in a particular time period and then we put our stamp of approval on it. What's the standard? The standard isn't, do I agree with it? The, the standard isn't, is it believable? That's not the standard. The standard here is, is it God-breathed? That's the standard. Was this breathed out by God? Is that what this is? We now use the word inspired. Was this inspired by God? Now, I don't have time to go into all the details and exactly how all of this was done, but let's just say this is and was and always will be the written Word of God. God breathed, inspired by God. Now, it's important to note here, as we're talking about canonization, that these writings of Scripture were already canon even before human beings recognized it as canon. This was already Scripture as the ink quill hit the parchment, they didn't have like Google Docs, you know. As the ink quill hit the parchment, it was immediately inspired by God. It was immediately God's Word. We didn't have to wait around for the centuries for it to be officially recognized as God's Word, for it to be God's Word. That's an important thing to understand because Christianity doesn't define God and Jesus and where our salvation comes from. What defines those things? The authority of Scripture defines who God is. 
The authority of Scripture defines where our salvation comes from. Scripture defines who Jesus Christ is. And so, every summer we teach from this canonized Scripture. And so, every summer we pick a particular passage to study together. And now you know that there are 66 books of it, and so that means I will be 114 years old by the time we finish this in our, in our summers. Now, I know that's a, a long introduction, but the point here is if we can't identify what Scripture is, we are unable to define what is true and what is false. If we can't define what is God-breathed, then we can't define what is theologically right and theologically wrong. When I say theologically, theology is the study of God. There's a lot of ologies in the Bible. There's Christology, the study of Jesus. There's ecclesiology, the study of the church. There's a ton of them. But theology is what does God think? How does God operate? His, his actions and His ways and His thoughts and, and His attributes. And so, without defining what is God-breathed, without defining what is truly Scripture, we can't define what is theologically right and theologically Wrong. And that's exactly what was happening at the end of the first century when 1 John was written. You remember some things about this, uh, this group of people. I'll just remind you from last week that this group of people were very familiar with Christianity. They grew up in Christian homes. They were the kids and the grandkids of the people who got saved all the way back in the book of Acts. Peter preaches a really short sermon and like thousands get saved. I think that's the secret. Preach a short sermon. I haven't learned that yet. But he preached a short sermon, thousands got saved, and, and they were passionate, they were on fire, and Christianity was, it was palpable, it was exciting, it was sparkly, and it was new. But now here we are 70 years later, and those people have had kids who have had kids, and now we're dealing with the kids and the grandkids of those people, and now Christianity is dull. Eh, we heard it before. We've been down this road. This is all we know. And so now their passion for Jesus is at an all-time low when 70 years ago it was at an all-time high. And that's the place where we find ourselves. And so these people who are now in this situation, they, they really aren't interested in being different than the rest of the culture. There's a reason for that, though, because what they had learned all along in those 70 years is being different, being a Christian, and that's what Christianity does, does call a person to be different. In first century, that was the case, to be different than the rest of the, the culture in Ephesus. And that's the same true today. As we, as we live up to the standards of Jesus Christ, we're different in Riverside too, you know? But they had learned for the 70 years that all being different as a Christian gets you is persecution, all it gets you is pain. All it gets you is difficulty. And so they weren't really interested in being different than the rest of culture. They just kind of wanted to merge, you know, <laughs> merge in. And so what this did was this brought a different kind of enemy. The enemy had always been from the outside. It was the persecution from the, from the Romans. It was the, the religious Judaism. And both of them were trying to stamp out to kill Christianity. And the way to do that was to kill Christians, to make it so difficult on them that they wouldn't want to claim Christianity at all. They wanted to kill Christianity. But now the new enemy is not, not that anymore. We're, we're beyond that now. This book doesn't mention those things. Now we're to the point of the enemy being on the inside, not the outsiders trying to stamp out Christianity, false teachers rising up within the church that want to improve Christianity, 
they, 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 want, they want to fix some of the problems in Christianity and, and make a 2.0 Christianity. They, they want to make Christianity fit, have Christianity merge with the rest of the culture. And the way to make Christianity merge with the rest of the culture and, and for the, the, the people inside the church not to be very different than those that, from outside the church was to bring in Gnosticism. Gnosticism was the way to improve Christianity. Gnosticism was the way of the culture. It was the religion of the culture like secularism to, is today. Gnosticism was in that day. And Gnosticism was a dual, had a dualist approach, where it was either one or the other. And the dualism of Gnosticism was that anything human, anything physical, um, anything, anything that was, was humanity was evil and immoral and unrighteous. And anything that was spiritual was holy and pure and good and righteous. And so you have the hum- humanity, which was the physical, which was I- immoral, and the, the, the spirit and the metaphysical, which was perfect and righteous. And so it played these two together. And so, of course, in a culture like that, we have to protect Jesus. Jesus said he was righteous, and Jesus is holy, and he is God, and therefore he cannot be human. And if he is human... That means he can't be God because he's now unholy and he's now unrighteous and he's now impure. That was Gnosticism. And so Gnosticism was brought in. We have to protect Jesus. We, we have to protect the name of Jesus. And so Jesus was not human. He was only spirit. He is only metaphysical, not, not physical. And so Gnosticism was beginning to rise within the church. And you can see the problems that would come from that. I mean, if Jesus wasn't God, you can, throw that, you can see that would be a few wrenches thrown into the message of Christianity. But it's also true that if Jesus isn't human, that causes enormous problems for the message of Christianity where you have God physically on earth, physically dying for human beings. And so now you can understand the, the confusion that is swirling within the church They just didn't have any good theology. They didn't understand what it was supposed to be. They were taking the message from all over the place. And so they had no way to determine what was right and what was wrong theologically. And so all this confusion is being stirred up. And so John writes this book to help them understand what's going on because As soon as you identify what is true, what is right, then you can build your theology on that. You can build your life on that. You can make your decisions based on what is right and what is wrong. But that wasn't happening here in these churches because of the Gnosticism that had begun to taint every part of the understanding of God, the way He operated, how it all worked. Now, you remember from last week, that the theme of First John is that Christians are to fellowship with God through Jesus Christ and fellowship with each other, but not with the world. That's the theme. That Christians are to fellowship with God, they're to fellowship with Jesus Christ, and then as a result of that, they're to fellowship with each other, but Christians are not to fellowship with the world. And so one of the questions that is brought up that's, that's confusing is, well, so then who's a Christian? 
Who is it that I am to be fellowshipping with, and who is it that I should not be fellowshipping with? You can see that all of the differences in the church were causing a lot of different kinds of people who believed various things about who a Christian was. And so 1 John is written to help these end of the first century Christians understand who is it that I am to fellowship with. But it also answers the question for us today in 2023 in Riverside, who is it that Christians today in 2023 are to fellowship with? Are, do we fellowship with all other religions? Do we fellowship with all of the churches in Riverside? Do we fellowship with everyone who calls themselves a Christian? Who is it that we fellowship with? Do we fellowship with our friends? Do we fellowship with our family? Do we fellowship with people who have the same sports affinity as us, with Dodger fans? Who is it that we have fellowship with? And so, 1 John answers these questions. So let's read the passage that we're going to study today, 1 John chapter three, First John chapter 1. We're going to read verses 3 through 7. Last week we studied two verses. We're going to double it up today and get a few more going. Verse 3 of 1 John 1. It says, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. And with the Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that your, our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. All right, well, let's go back to verse 3, and let's get introduced to this idea of fellowship, because this is the first verse where we start getting introduced to this fellowship between three different people, Christians, God, and Jesus. Look at verse 3. It says, what you've seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you Two, may have fellowship, there's that word, with us, like other Christians, John and other Christians. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So there's the theme, there's the, mess, there's the overarching theme right there in that verse. Now, who is it that we are to fellowship with? That's a question. Who is it? Well, as we define the term fellowship, it is going to tell us who it is that we have fellowship with. As we know what the term means it will automatically tell us who it is that we have fellowship with. That term fellowship is a Greek word. It's the Greek word koinonia. You could just easily replace it there, and all of a sudden it's now Greek up there. But now you know that it's translated into fellowship. Now, if you're familiar with the Christian world a little bit, Maybe you've been to a church where uh, they use that word koinonia a lot. Some churches have a room called the koinonia room. We don't have a koinonia room, we have a social hall, but the reason they, they often call it a koinonia room is because that's where social gatherings occur. Now, some churches, uh, we just call our small groups, we call them small groups, it's pretty clear. Um, but some churches call them koinonia groups because that's where a social gathering occurs. 
we don't have koinonia room and we don't have a koinonia groups because that's not exactly what koinonia means. Koinonia doesn't mean exactly a social gathering. It's way more than that. And part of the way that we get an understanding of this word is by looking at this word throughout the rest of Scripture. I just want to show you one place where Paul, a different author, uses this word koinonia, but it's translated into a different word than fellowship. It gives us a fuller understanding of this word koinonia or fellowship. So here we have Philippians 1. This is not written by John. This is written by Paul. But here's what Paul says. It says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I just want you to notice there, why is it that Paul is so confident that God is going to finish this great work inside of them? Why? Well, in view of your participation. His confidence that God is going to finish this work inside of them is that he can see their participation together in the gospel, that he can see, another Christian word would be, he can see their fruit. He can see that God's Holy Spirit is working inside of them. He can see that they're partnering together for the sake of the gospel. And so his confidence that God is going to work in them is that they have already shown a propensity to to live the, the things of Christ together. They're participating together. They're their, their fruit is being seen, and God's Holy Spirit is, is obviously living through them. They are obviously uh, living for, for Christ, and so he has no doubt as an aspect of seeing all of that. He has no doubt that God is going to finish that work in them because they're partnering together for the sake of the gospel, participating together for the sake of the gospel. Now, what's interesting about that word participation, it is the Greek word koinonia. Same word. Isn't it interesting that one word in one place, the same word in one place, is translated into fellowship, and in another place, it's translated into partnership? And there's a reason for that. Now, imagine studying all of the places in the entire New Testament where the koinony is. Welcome to my week, okay? I'm not going to show you all of those, but I, I just want you to see that this word fellowship is much deeper than just a social gathering. Because if it was just a social gathering, there's koinonia happening at a Dodger game this afternoon. And koinonia happened at all the bars on university last night. If it's just a social gathering. But there's something way more than this. This is a partnering together spiritually. A participating together spiritually. That's what this word fellowship means. It's beyond just getting together. It's beyond having a snack together. It is a, a, a specific group of people who can fellowship. Sometimes fellowship or koinonia is described as spiritual communication, um, using Christian terms and, and, and encouraging each other or discussing certain Christian topics like we are right now. So it's sometimes described as spiritual communication. Sometimes it's, uh, it's spiritual cooperation where Christians get together 
and they don't just use terms together, they begin to serve each other. They cooperate together. They participate in this word. They participate together for the sake of a unified purpose, not for, uh, not for the Dodgers, but for Christ. Not, not for a, a, an affinity, but for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you have this spiritual communication that's happening where we're encouraging each other, we're talking about Christian things, we have that common ground, but then we're doing things together, and then you add that to spiritual communion, communing, living life together. The Bible sometimes discusses the the group of Christians together as a body or even as a family that is communing together. All of those parts of the participation, all fitting together, communing together so that we make one fit body all together. That is what fellowship is. It's like that. And Paul could see that that was happening in this church. He's like, I have no, I have no doubt that God's going to work, continue through you because of the communing, the participating, the communication that you have together. So that's the word koinonia in a little further understanding. So now we pull that all the way back to 1 John 3. Koinonia means being a partner together. Well, being a partner with who? Well, it says in verse 3, with us, with other Christians, because they possess eternal life. They are in Christ. God the Father has granted them eternal life through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so now we can be a partner together. And the purpose of 1 John is to enhance our relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ so that then we could have fellowship with each other. That's the order. The order is not that we have fellowship with each other, hoping someday to build to a point of having fellowship with God and eternal life. That's not the order. The order is that we have fellowship with God the Father through eternal life, and then that's where the fellowship can come. And there's joy in that. That's what verse 4 is about. It says, these things we write so that our joy may be complete. What are these things? He's just referring to verse 3. That's the context. He's referring back to where he says that you may also have fellowship with us. And he's saying that's joy when we have fellowship together. The purpose of John here helps us have fellowship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ so that then we can have this joy of fellowshipping this kind of deep, not just a social gathering, this deep kind of fellowship together. It first comes from a common ground that we have first with God in eternal life, and then we can commune, have fellowship with each other uh, together. We see that same order in verse 7. Go down to verse 7 of First John 1. It's same idea, just said slightly differently. It says, but if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we'll get to that, what it means, but if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's the order. First, when we have fellowship with God and we we're, we're, have fellowship with Him through eternal life and other ways, we'll get to what those other ways are, then we can have fellowship with other people who are doing that thing too. That's where fellowship with people comes from. And so it was was joy for John, back to verse 4, that's why it was a joy for him that this fellowship would be so deep 
and it would be so enriching. It's not just a surface thing. It is a very, comes from a deep well of commonality and common ground and unity together in something that's not just surfacey. Verse 5. It says, This is the message that we have heard from Him and announced to you. This is the message that we've heard from Him. Who is that? From who? From Jesus. Sometimes if you're not sure what Him is, when you look at your Bibles and it's a capital H, that gives you a little bit of insight to know that that's, a, that's referring to the Godhead. And remember, this is John writing, and John was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so, the, the, the false teachers, remember saying they have, they have this new message. They have this new thing. They're going to update this whole thing of Christianity. They're going to make it palatable for everybody else, and, and you've got to listen to my new thing. And John says, I got my message directly from Jesus Christ. He, like, he, pulls, the, he, he pulls the, I'm an apostle card. I'm an apostle. You chumps, not apostles. Your message does not come from Jesus Christ. Mine comes from Him. And that's what you now have. It's come from Jesus through me, and now it's coming to you. And what's that message, verse 5? That God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Remember the Gnostics, they claimed to be enlightened. They claim to have this special new message that nobody else had. They were the enlightened ones. By the way, that's what every single Christian cult uses that same thing. We have more information beyond this. And so that's what they brought. They, they had more information. They claim to be the enlightened ones. And John says... <laughs> That God is light. God is the one who is enlightened. And in Him there is no darkness at all. Now, what does light mean? Light is truth. In, in God there is truth. And in darkness, darkness is error. You have truth in God. Everything else is error. False. Truth and right in God, that's the light. And you have the error that is in the darkness. The truth is holiness. And, and darkness is sin. And so, that's the message. That God is the enlightened one. And in Him there is truth. And that truth brings holiness. But if you're in the dark, <laughs> there's problems. God is not in the dark. But the insinuation in verse 5 is that someone is in the dark. In God, He's light, truth, holiness. He's not in the darkness at all. Well, but who is? Well, that's verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have fellowship with God, verse 6, if we, if we sh say that we are communing with God, if we, if we say that, and yet we walk in darkness, what do we, how do we define darkness? 
sin, false, false truth, sin. There's another word that's used in this in verses six and seven that we don't use typically today. It's the New Testament word of walk. Walk means to live. A, a Christian's walk is the way they live their life. So let's look back at verse 6 again. If we say that we have fellowship with God, if we're communing with God, if we have eternal life with God, if, we're, if holiness is brought apart in our life as an aspect of His truth in my life, if we say that we have fellowship with God and yet we walk, what does that word mean? Live. If we live in the darkness, if we live in sin, then we lie and we don't practice the truth. Sometimes people come and ask me a, a good question often, and the question is, is well, they say they're a Christian. I, who, who am I to, to ever doubt that? Well, this verse, verse 6, gives you a pretty clear way to define who is a Christian and who isn't. If there is someone who says that they're in fellowship with God, and yet they're living in sin, you might want to second-guess it. Now, I mean, of course, you're not a judge. You don't send anybody to heaven or hell. But, but remember, the question of these people, well, who is it that I am to fellowship with? Who is a Christian? Who, what am I looking for? And John says, okay. A lot of John is going to be like this. Get used to this kind of conversation about how do you know what a Christian is throughout 1 John. And here's the very first way. If they are walking, if their life is sinful, there's a clue. They're a liar about their statement about being in fellowship with God. Now look at verse 7. But if we walk, now what is the word walk? Live. Great. If we live in the light, how have we defined light? That's truth. That's God's truth. Now, of course, today now we have, we have canonized the truth, and that's the biblical truth that we have here. Truth and holiness. If we walk, if we live in the truth and it affect us in the holiness, as He Himself is in the light, is God in the light? Uh, yes. <laughs> is Jesus Christ in the light? Yeah, of course. He, he is the source of all light. He is the only reason that we know what light even is. He is the one that provided us the light. And so it says, if we walk, in the light, as He Himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. A genuine Christian is one who walks in the light. Are you walking in the light? A genuine Christian is one who walks, who lives in the light of the truth of God's Word, that your life is changed, that it is reflective of the fact that you are being changed by the truth of God. Are you walking in the light? That is how you know who a Christian is. You don't have to wonder who a Christian is. Are you walking in the light? And so someone who walks in the light is characterized by someone who their life is affected by the truth of God's Word. Now you can see why it's so important to identify what is the truth. Because without being able to identify what is true and what is wrong, then you're just swimming around trying to figure it out. 
And so if we were to kind of encapsulate all of this in something that might be memorable for you to remember, this is kind of the message of these verses that we're studying here. Fellowship with Christians is important, but that is dependent on a person's fellowship with God, which is dependent on (laughs) reading and really even doing what's in God's Word. A Christian has fellowship when they are living in the light of God, when they're being changed by God's Word. Now they have fellowship with Him. They have fellowship not only in the first aspect of fellowship with Him through through salvation and eternal life, but now they're growing more and more holy, not because they're better, but because they're being changed to be better by Christ. Now they can have fellowship with other people who are Christians. And that's why this was a joy to, joy to John all the way back in verse 4. He was so connected in fellowship to them. And he knew that as they received this written sermon or heard this sermon if you preached it to him and then wrote it down. But as they received this sermon, they, he knew that they were going to treat it as if it was God's Word. And they were going to live, they were going to walk in the light of this as well. And that Christianity was not going to be sidelined by Gnosticism, that they were going to follow through on what they heard here as well. It is a joy when Christians are together. It's a joy when they can fellowship together because we have something that bonds us way different than anything else in our culture. It's good when Christians, that's why you like coming to church together. Something miraculous happens when Christians gather together. When I say miraculous, I don't mean like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we're not like hovering in the air right now, you know. But just think of the places that we've all come from. Just this last week, you know, the, the, the various cultures or even languages or backgrounds or economic statuses or relationship situations or, or, uh, or family, just think of it. How divisive we really could be. But here we are all gathered together. This is a miracle that all of us who have so, so different lives can unify together. Why is that? Because we have eternal life. We want to grow and we want to walk in the light of His truth. That is what binds people together. And that's why it's, the Bible says that when you gather together as Christians, that there's joy that comes, that encouragement comes from that. And that's what John is saying. This is a wonderful joy. And not only just being around each other, fellowship isn't just like being together. It's also participating for the sake of the gospel. If you're looking to get to know people here at Grace, the best way to get to know people is by finding a ministry to serve in. If you're not sure what ministry to serve in, just start wherever. Just say, put me somewhere, and just do that, not not until you get tired, but do that until God leads you to another place that you're going to serve. That is the way that you'll get to know people because you have this common ground. You are now participating for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is fellowship, and that builds bonds between people that are tighter than really any other bonds relationally that we have. The way that I know most of you is by serving in some sort of ministry with you or for you. 
all the way from uh, going to Mexico with you on a Mexico missions trip or serving food in our men's breakfast serving line, whatever it is, teaching in Sunday school or or high school ministry, all these different ways are ways that I've gotten to know most people here at Grace because that, that, that fellowship of participation for the sake of the gospel binds people together. And it's not just when we gather here, either. it's not just here, and it's not just us. This isn't like exclusive to only us Christians at Grace Community Church like we have something special. It's all Christians everywhere around the world. I've mentioned to you many times that when my family goes on vacation, we always go to church if it's a Sunday. Now, the way that I pick the church that we go to is not spiritual at all. <laughs> so don't do it like I do it, I guess. The way I pick the church that we go to is, how close is it? <laughs> how close is it to where we are? All right, That gives you an impression of how spiritual I am on vacation. And so uh, this one time we were in another state um, and just randomly selected a church. We show up to that church, and guess who's there? Sure enough, it's a person who used to be a member at Grace Community Church in another state, and here they are now in fellowship, communing with another group of Christians in another state. And that, that's joy there, that, because we, we have something in common. It's good to go to a church in another state, because there is something in common when I go there. We have fellowshiped, we can fellowship because we have eternal life together, we are growing in our holiness together, we want to serve Jesus. And so there can even be fellowship when you're not just around the ones that you know on a particular Sunday morning. Now, I want to talk real quick about, though, this thing about fellowshipping with God. That's an interesting phrase. You know, koinonia with God. That could lead to the impression that in some way I participate in my salvation as we've started to define this word koinonia. It could lead to the impression that in some way, I, I provide something for my salvation, that God provides what He provides through Jesus Christ, and then I do better and better and better and better, and I say, okay, God, I'll take what you provided, and God says, okay, then I'll take what you provided, and together we agree that we're saved. That, that could be the implication of this. But I, I just want to clarify that fellowship with God is not that, that that. I contributed nothing. I participated in no way in my salvation. The only participation that I had in my salvation is my sin. That's my only contribution to my salvation. I didn't participate in any other way. It was God who provided for me. That he, He's the only one who participated in the salvation of me. He's the one who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity to planet Earth. He's the, he's the one that, that, uh, that uh, put Him on a cross in His adult life. It was then Jesus' death and the blood being poured out that then is an opportunity for that blood and that death to pay for my sin. The Bible says that Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, who is Jesus, for the unjust, which is me. And so, I, 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 the only thing I provided, I participated in my salvation, is unjustness, being imperfect. Have you ever said something you shouldn't have said? Have you ever thought something you shouldn't have thought? Have you ever done something you shouldn't have done? Okay, good, we're all the same. We're all unjust. And that's 
that's, our, that's how, what we contribute. That is how we participate in our salvation. If, we, if none of us sinned, then, of course, Jesus Christ would not need to die on the cross, but we did. And God, in His love and His grace and His mercy, provides His Son for our salvation. Maybe I even could go a bit further. That when we talk about fellowship with God, I, that's not even to insinuate that in my ministry, even in serving Him, that I provide anything even for that. The only thing that I provide for the success of my ministry is my weakness. God doesn't have that. God has all the power. He has all the strength. He, 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 has, he has everything when it comes to ministry. All he needs some, is somebody who's weak. <laughs> okay, I can do that, God. And so when, it comes to, when we talk about participation or fellowship with God, we're not saying that, that I bring something to the table and God's like, whew, I'm glad they got saved. I don't know how I was going to do it without that person. All we do is we provide our weakness. And then when something occurs that's wonderful in that ministry, God's the one who gets the glory. It's not me. It's God who provided the power and the ability and all those things. And so what does it mean to fellowship with God? Yeah, we're, we're not in partnership with Him in that sense with our salvation or with, it, with our gifts that He has given us. But we do have a partnership in that we share the, the benefits of Jesus Christ. That's, that is where we do partner together. We share in the benefits that come from Jesus Christ. And one of the myriads of them, but one of those benefits that come from Jesus Christ is God's Holy Spirit that comes and lives inside of us. When a person puts their faith, their trust, their belief on Jesus Christ and their sins are removed, that's not the end to this whole thing. It's not just like a, okay, now you're set for eternal life and now you're good. The, the third person of the Trinity, God's Holy Spirit, comes and lives inside of a Christian. That's one of the benefits of, of Christ's death for us. And so as we receive the benefits of Jesus Christ, one of them is God's Holy Spirit, which helps us to live a holier and a holier and a holier life until finally we are finally glorified in eternity. God's Holy Spirit is what provides the ability to have fellowship with God in the first place. That's where it comes from. God provides us our eternal life, but that's not it. He provides us the Holy Spirit that helps us begin to reflect the, the truth that has happened in our heart, that we would have fruit, that other people would notice that we are participating for the sake of the gospel. That's the Holy Spirit that comes from us. And in that way, we receive and share, all of us do, we all share in the blessings of Jesus Christ, namely the Holy Spirit and many others. And so I ho- hope fully you're following the math here, that first, God's truth, God's Word reveals the gospel. And then a person hears that gospel. They, they, they hear what, what that is, and they become a Christian. God's Holy Spirit lives inside of them, and they begin to live a different way. They begin to live a different life. That whole thing that those, those Christians, they didn't really want to be different, well, the Holy Spirit begins to make you different. You begin to live a, a life that is not like your old, not because you've done anything, but it's God's work in your life. And now that person who is saved by Jesus, 
God's grace is upon them. The Holy Spirit is living inside of them, and now they're growing and serving. Now that person can have fellowship with other people who are doing the same thing. So are you walking in the light? That's the question. Can some, someone else, just imagine someone else who is walking in the light, someone else who is like that. They're saved, they're growing in their faith, they're serving God. Okay? And that person is standing like right here. Could they identify that in you so that you and they could have fellowship together? That's the th- Are you walking in the light? Is your life reflective of what God has done in your life, and now it is being seen in your participation for the gospel by other people? And if you could say, yeah, 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 that's me, then John would say, okay, then you go find other people who are doing that same thing. That's fellowship. So now we come full circle and we, we come back and we can answer the question, who, who is a Christian? Who is it that I'm to fellowship with? Who is it that I'm not to fellowship with? Well, the one that a Christian is to fellowship with is one who has fellowship with God through eternal life, and it's seen in some sort of way that you would know that they're saved by God. That's the person that a Christian has fellowship with. Remember, a a Christian has fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, and then they have fellowship with other believers, but they don't have fellowship with the world. Because this word fellowship is, is much deeper than just a social connection, a, a, a social event. So now, who is it that Christians are supposed to fellowship with? Is it with all the other religions in the world? No. Who is it? That, do, do we have fellowship with, with all of the other churches in Riverside? Ooh. There's this thing that, that's going around in, in our culture. It's called ecumenicalism. And, and ecumenical just means um, everybody coming together. And the idea of ecumenicalism is that um, they, they want all the churches just to unify. Um, and, and in Riverside, this is completely the case, too, that... that that we, we just we agree on a couple things, we just agree on those things, and we don't worry about any of the rest. But, but this is the truth. You know, this is what's been canonized. And, and so you, you can't fellowship with people who are walking in the darkness. That's the point. So do, do you have fellowship with everyone who calls themselves a Christian? Well, you can only have fellowship with the ones who are really a Christian, who are walking in the light. That's, that's the only one that you can really participate with in the, for the sake of the gospel. The other ones who are participating for the sake of the gospel. So do you have fellowship with your friends? Well, I mean the ones who are saved and living for Jesus, yes. Do you have fellowship with your family? Only the ones who are saved. You love your family. <laughs> you, you have to love your family. But fellowship and familial 
love are two different relationships. One's not necessarily better and one's not necessarily worse, but they are definitely different relationships. Biblical fellowship is not just any social gathering that occurs. It is only with people who are changed by Jesus Christ, people who have fellowship with God the Father as they're living, walking in the light. Their life is reflective of the truth that that is now noticed. Doing that with other people. And so I would encourage you, if you have family who are not Christians, I would encourage you not to insinuate that you have fellowship with them. You must insinuate that you love them, but I wouldn't insinuate that there's a Christian fellowship between you and them. Because that you might accidentally, like unintentionally, you might convince them accidentally that they're saved and thereby negate any sort of guilt or need for Christ in the sense that you've already affirmed their salvation. And so fellowship is a very different um, relationship. And that's why for John, it was joy when they could all get to, when they could all do those things together. It was joyful for him. That's why it's joyful for us together too. Now, a question comes up sometimes at this point in time. Well, how does a Christian get back to fellowship with God once they've started to sin? Well, that's what John addresses next week. So you just have to hang out till next week for that one. Short answer is confess your sin. Now you don't need to come next week. If you have... If you have are not sure if you have fellowship with God, today's the day that you can know that you have fellowship with God. Today you can begin your fellowship with God by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, the one who washes away your sin. So I'm going to ask all of you, whether you're saved or not, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes? It just creates a little separation between you and the person next to you. And this gives you a chance to consider eternal things. You don't, you don't think about eternal things any other part of your week except for this two minutes. Do you know that you have fellowship with God? do you know that you have eternal life in Jesus Christ? And if not, today could be the day where you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You just talk to him, it's called prayer. You already know everything about who Jesus is, that he's God, he's died for your sin. Now you just need to talk to God about that. It's called prayer. And so he reads your mind, you don't need to say anything out loud, but I I could help lead you in what you could say to him just in your own mind if you're not sure what to say. This is what you could say to God. You could say, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I'm imperfect. I know that I am unrighteous, and I realize that I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus is that Savior. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that He died on the cross for my sin, and I believe that He rose from the grave three days later, proving that He can do everything that He said He could do. And I put my faith, I put my personal belief, I put my trust in this Jesus to save me from my sins and give me eternal life. With your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, many of you have already prayed that prayer. Many of you already know that you're going to heaven. And so that means you have God's Holy Spirit living inside of you. And so just for a minute of reflection for you, are you walking in the light? Could other people look at your life and say, yes, that is a person I can fellowship with? And this is a prayer. This is, you can deal with this between you and God. And if you're not sure what to say to God in a moment like this, I can help you. 
you can just pray a prayer like this, God, I'm sorry that I haven't been walking in the light. Or if you are, you could say, God, thank you for allowing me to walk in the light. But if your heart's convicted this morning and you realize that you have not, your life is not reflective of the truth that you know, you talk to God in a moment of confession. You say, God, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I have, I've walked away from the truth that has been revealed to me in your Bible. And I'm not li- I haven't been living that way, and that's wrong. It hurts, it hurts me way more than it hurts you. And I want to I wanna live according to your Bible. And I need your Holy Spirit's help to help me walk in the light. Oh God, we thank you for the truth that you've provided to us and we thank you for um, the, 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 the revealing of these things to us. Not just that you've said them or know them, but now we can know them. And that's why we worship, we worship you this morning. It's because of your provision of your salvation, but also the provision of your written word that we can know them. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name.